Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. December 21st, 2023, the Trump versus Colorado edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. And in this giddy pre-holiday moment by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York City. Hello, John. <clears throat> Does that mean I have to be giddy or, or you're just characterizing the moment and then trying to haul me into it. The moment is giddy. I see. Okay. This week on the GabFest, the blockbuster Colorado Supreme Court decision barring former President Trump from the presidential ballot there. Will it stick? Is it a good decision? Then the showdown between Texas and the Biden administration over immigration enforcement. And then the one I'm looking forward to most, Amanda Ripley is going to join us to share some really wise advice about how to live through what promises to be a poisonous, grim, and tense 2024. Uh, Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. Colorado Supreme Court, by a vote of four to three, ruled that former President Trump is ineligible to appear on the presidential primary ballot in that state, concluding that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which banned people who, who engage in insurrection from serving as officers of the United States, applies to Trump. The justices reached some potentially remarkable conclusions. First, that Trump definitively engaged in insurrection by trying to overturn the 2020 election. And also that the president is a covered officer of the United States under the definition in the amendment, which Emily will explain more precisely in a moment. And also that the insurrection clause in this in the 14th Amendment, which no one had ever heard of, really, let's be honest, none of us had ever heard of it six months ago, uh, is alive and well. And it's not just a, a, an appendix, a vestigial organ of post-Civil War America. So, Emily, what do you make of the legal reasoning in the Colorado Supreme Court decision? Well, I mean, so there's like a matter of law in this case, and then there's a matter of politics. As a matter of law, I mean, first of all, I think the ruling that this section of the 14th Amendment applies to the president is sound. Basically, there's an argument going on over the words office and officer in the Constitution and how they're used in different clauses and whether they both encompass the president. To me, the argument that this has to cover the president, given what Congress was doing at the time, given that it has this sweeping language about officers generally makes sense. Um, And I also think I'm just offended by the notion that you would be able to kick everyone else out of office, but somehow the president would be exempt from that. Although there are people who argue precisely that. Then there's this question about insurrection. The language in Section 3 says that nobody who has taken an oath to support the Constitution should hold any office in the United States if that person has engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. And then the question becomes, how do we define those words? And, you know, the Colorado Supreme Court did its own analysis based on the events of January 6th and what we know about former President Trump's conduct. I had been feeling that there's something very odd about doing this analysis merely in this context. In other words, are there criminal charges? Is there some kind of evidence of a conviction of insurrection? Because, of course, the Justice Department has not brought charges of insurrection against Trump. And so 
I find that troubling that in this particular context, you would have a legal analysis that's kind of severed from the criminal context. But I don't know. Lately, I've been thinking, like, why am I so bothered by that? That happens in lots of areas of law. And and so I'm left with my own real uneasiness about the politics of this and just the prudence of taking the choice of the presidency of who to vote for for president away from the voters, which is what this decision would do, right? I mean, at the moment, we're just talking about who is on the Republican primary ballot in Colorado. But in the end, we're going to wind up with who is on the primary ballot in many states because there are 16 other lawsuits and ultimately who is on the ballot in the general election. I don't want to do what I'm about to do, but I'm going to do it anyway, which is that we know that Trump is going to be on the presidential election ballots. We know that's going to happen. We know that there will, we're going to have a Supreme Court decision that's going to get him there. And really the question to me is how does that happen? And in what way does that happen? Well, in that case, there's an argument for certainty sooner. So Rick Hazen, who is a law professor who writes tons about election law, made this argument months ago that what's important here is certainty. The Supreme Court should weigh in soon and definitively and just answer this question. And other folks like Ruth Marcus, a friend of the GabFest, have been arguing for a unanimous decision in favor of Trump being on the ballot. So we just settle this. I do worry a little bit about the damage that might get done along the way to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which seems like some sort of important safeguard we're now going to kind of brush right by. But I don't know what to do about that. Doesn't it depend how they offer certainty? I mean, they could offer the certainty that you say, which is he has to the person at issue has to be convicted or they could offer the certainty that on some other grounds that would that would not eviscerate the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Yes. But then the question is, what are those grounds? And what are the things at issue, whether he's a president, whether it's um, whether it's ripe, and then I guess whether he participated in an insurrection and how you determine that? What do you mean, whether it's ripe? Because the reason that the other Minnesota and Michigan oh, uh, right, uh, yeah. right, didn't take up the case, as they said, parties get to pick their nominees, but that was about the primary ballot, the question then in the general election, it seems to be it's obvious that states uh, have, you know, have the ability to keep people on or off the ballot. But and I guess it was in Michigan, maybe the judge said this could be ripe once we get once he gets the nomination, basically. I think that was Minnesota. I in think any it, case, was it, it was one of the M states yeah. where that, that was the yeah, where they said not ripe now, but could be later. I mean, that seems like a really bad idea politically, pol- just for the country to put off this decision until later. Yeah, right. And I think one of the points that people make about the ripeness is that we don't have a question about ripeness if someone who is 27 is trying to run for president or someone who is like a, a, a German national is trying to run for president. They just don't get on the ballot because we know they're ineligible to serve and therefore you don't let them on. And so if you say that this person will be ineligible to serve definitionally, then they shouldn't be on. And there's a whole analysis in the Colorado Supreme Court about precisely these decisions, this question of like the private party nature and what you were just talking about and whether the Secretary of State of Colorado has power to enforce these rules. And I found that um, part of the analysis persuasive. John, just skipping briefly to the political question, as political news, this seems fantastically good for Trump. It depicts a liberal court that is so out of control that it's going to prevent the voters from having their say. Uh, voters love having their say. And it's, it is rigging like the, this sort of line that the elections are being rigged. I mean, what, what better evidence do you want the elections being rigged? They're keeping me off the ballot. So, so if, I, if you're Biden, don't you just want a 
nine to zero Supreme Court decision tomorrow knocking this back. Yeah, let me entertain that for a second. If you're if you're Biden, I think you want nine zero knocking it back that doesn't touch on the idea of insurrection at all. In other words, that finds some legal little loophole, because while what you say is incredibly true in the Republican primary, um, that this only helps Donald Trump, it helps by grabbing the oxygen and it helps by centering what is now hard to argue anything else, what is now an attribute in the Republican Party, which is you need to have participated in an attempt to overthrow the last election. We see in polls repeatedly that people that Republican primary voters think it was okay. Um, And you see in Trump's opponents, normally in politics, what would happen is they might not want unelected judges to come rumbling into the into the race. But what they would say is, we hate unelected judges, but the underlying case here is that a person who was who swore an oath to protect the Constitution attacked it repeatedly for over two months, which culminated in an attack on the Capitol, and we can't have that as president. That second half was never said because it's a detriment in the Republican primary right now to be anti-insurrection um, or anti the person who um, encouraged the more than two-month effort to overthrow an election. And given that that's... Um, that's the case. That's all very good for Donald Trump. But I think in a general election context, I think it is still undetermined whether the larger electorate will, when faced with the idea that you have a person here who worked to overthrow an election, did all of this stuff that we know from the January 6th committee, which was filled with testimony from former Trump aides. We have all the things that Republicans said about what Trump tried to do, that that will that will have no purchase on voters when it comes to Election Day. And to the extent that this keeps that in the conversation, that's potentially not very good for Donald Trump. Yeah, that's what I was wondering is whether even though you're right about the politics, ultimately, David, that just this attention, thinking about him as an insurrectionist one more time, like how is yes, his base, his party doesn't care about that, but the rest of the country might except that like is the rest of the country are these general voters paying enough attention right now like will this matter in several months probably not right so this week i, re- I wrote an essay and essentially said while we wait for the court to decide all these thorny legal issues we can play the at home version of the 14th amendment and that is make a judgment not about whether trump should be on a ballot but whether he should be given a presidency a second time around based on the behavior and use the template that the 14th amendment offers and this the it's not complicated. It's common sense. You don't, when somebody is convicted of, of securities fraud, you don't let them trade again. When somebody commits, you know, gross malpractice in uh, medicine, they get their license taken away. So using that theory, which is at the heart of the 14th Amendment, are you going to vote for somebody where the senior members of their party said that he tried to gut the Constitution in its central pillar of a free and fair election Given that testimony from people who are in his party, are you going to are you going to vote for him? That's the at home um, version of this that you can ask yourself. I think that's pretty easy to tee up later. I mean, insurrection is, though people are trying to forget it, it's not that hard to re to bring that up closer to election time. So I think it's still I think it still could matter. Emily, going back to your initial legal analysis, why are you so sure that the president is supposed to be covered? By this, so so my extremely cursory reading suggests that in the initial drafts of of Section Three, the president was covered. The president, vice president, were was co- were covered, and then they were struck out of it, and which suggests there was some reason. And and one reason 
you see already visible in Texas, where the lieutenant governor of Texas is now saying, we're going to strike Joe Biden from the Texas uh, presidential ballot. And because, you know, we don't like him. And so the idea is that the, that the president is such a uh, it's, it's such a huge touchstone that making the, making it possible for people to sort of engage in multi-state warfare, knocking presidents off a ballot is a big issue uh, that is not easily resolved. And therefore, you you do let the people have their say and hope that they are educated in the way John just described that they are educated. Yeah, I mean, there is absolutely a dispute about whether the presidency is covered. I uh, was reading a substack by Adam Unikowski, who is a really smart lawyer, and he was pointing out that the president holds office under the United States. That's in the eligibility requirement in Article 2. And you know, this idea of like, if you hold office, an officer means someone who holds office. Therefore, the president is a quote, officer of the United States under Section 3. Previous drafts, I don't know, like how much does that become definitive evidence? I just feel like also, I think I said this earlier, but I'm the idea that you would not include the president in this list in this moment where what you're worrying about are people like Jefferson Davis, the former president of the Confederacy just seems like wild to me. And usually the most wild and implausible explanation for um, reading a legal text is not the correct one. But I do confess, I also am just offended by this idea, right? Just makes me feel like the president would be above the law in some way that I always bridle at. So maybe that is clouding my judgment. Also, what's a constitution for? In other words, why was this made an amendment? There are some things that are so important that they require the higher threshold of, of uh, being amended to the Constitution because they are meant to be solid and, and resist the momentary passions of the moment, which is what politics is all about. And so, um, so why put it in the Constitution if, if, um, if not to bar and overthrow the momentary political um, passions, which is what you know campaigns are all about? Also, I think there's evidence that um, the drafters of this provision in what they said inc- intended it, or at least this is the judgment of the Colorado Supreme Court, that, uh, you know, Congressman, whatever, McKee, or um, in all of his speeches made it clear that he that he meant for presidents to be involved. So even though it might have fallen out in a draft, there's no evidence that it fell out for any particular reason. So Emily, one of the things that I find perplexing about this whole episode when I go on threads now, because I don't go on Twitter, but even on threads, there are all these people who I think of as being quite, you know, smart and legal minded. And they're saying, we have to, you know, look at this. This is so important. This is, this really matters. This is the, this is what the constitution is there for. It is really there to, to be a stopgap to prevent these terrible things from happening. And you people who are just looking at the political questions here are, are, misunderstanding the role of the constitution and being craven weasels and being craven weasels. Thank you. Very well said as one weasel to another. Um, But there is this kind of, we keep having this hope, I think as a nation or as a nation, the the non-Trump loving part of the nation, that the legal system will rescue us. The legal system is going to save us. But I feel like in a, in a country where an entire, entire political party has aligned itself with a mortal threat and has said, we don't care about the legal system. We don't care about these institutions really very much. Um, it is 
it's very hard for just the legal system, which is one small piece of the of the the magnificent body that is the entire United States and its government to to hold everything else back. And and it it even if even if you feel like this is the absolutely legally correct decision. It's almost hard to see how it could apply, be enforced, could ever stick. Yeah, or even if it sticks, that it wouldn't cause so much damage to the democracy along the way for people to feel that they were blocked by, you know, judges in robes from making their democratic choice. I don't know. It's possible that we're making too big a deal of that, but when I look at the posts from the people you're talking about, some of whom are incredibly smart and conscientious, et cetera, I think, like, have you talked to the people who disagree with you in large parts of the country? Like, have you gone and hung out in Trump territory and thought about what this would feel like from that end? Because it just seems to me that it would be taken in in a completely different way. Um, And, you know, I just go back to the idea that the Senate is to blame for the predicament that we're in. The Senate should have convicted Donald Trump in January 2021. All the evidence was there. They fell 10 votes short. And so we are casting about for other alternatives. And the legal system is providing 91 criminal charges. But the legal system grinds in a slow and very particularized set of ways, as we're learning in all these cases. And in the end, it is entirely likely this will be up to the voters in November 2024. And the legal system's ins and outs are merely going to exist to inform the choices that voters make. John, bring us home. I think it's important not to forget what Trump himself is up to, because this week just reminded us of what an appalling, appalling figure he is in the American landscape and how incredibly dangerous he would be. Because you don't get uh, presidential candidates to playing with Hitler, playing footsie with Hitler very much these days, but there he is playing footsie with Hitler. He he is, and and what when he talks about people from Africa and Asia poisoning the blood of America. Um, you don't have to have read any Hitler um, to know that the idea of, of blood purity um, comes right out of that era. Um, it's almost worse in a way if you haven't read Hitler. It's like, um, I've got such a natural instinct for Hitlerian language. People mistake me for Hitler. That's not a great um, defense. Um and and it's not only vile in its um, echoes of Hitler, but it's vile in opposition to the American idea, which is that America is an idea and not um, something that comes to you as a result of blood. And also the fact that he singled out countries that aren't Europe um, all makes it very clear and implicit in now he was talking about immigration, but of course, Blood does not have an immigration status. So when you single out Asian and African countries and talk about poisoning the blood, it's not like the blood that gets through the immigration process is somehow more pure than the other. And it was Mitch McConnell who pointed this out when asked about Trump's remarks. He said, well, it didn't seem to bother him when he made Elaine Chao his uh, transportation secretary. Elaine Chao was born in Taiwan. Also, uh, not only is there the instinct for this kind of... um, vile talk that is just kind of natural to him. But also, you didn't need to go that far. (laughs) I mean, Biden's um, border uh, problem is a significant and um, not going away one. (laughs) 
And um, there are lots of things you can do. The governor of Texas is doing some of them quite effectively to highlight his problems, to show you are a leader in the space, um, and to generally own that political uh, landscape. So um, that's all of the many ways in which this is um, awful. And also, it just is another every day, you know, his allies have to wake up and go, okay, it's okay to, to say this for him. And it just erodes one more part of what used to be people's, you know, core beliefs. Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? Stick around for our bonus segment. Today, Amanda Ripley is going to stay with us. She's going to be here and she's going to stay with us. And we're going to talk about what we are going to do during our holiday break and the ways we're going to fill our times and our minds during the break. Uh, but the segment is just for Slate Plus members. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you. Because of your support, we've been able to keep the GabFest going for so many years. If you are not a Slate Plus member, we would love it if you signed up. You will get bonus segments of every episode of the GabFest, as well as other Slate podcasts, special discounts on live shows, not hitting the paywall on the Slate site, much more. So if you're a member, thank you. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a law that was speed metal through the Texas legislature in a special session that would allow Texas law enforcement officials to arrest migrants for the crime of crossing into Texas anywhere besides authorized border crossings. This is the latest expansion of Texas's so far extremely futile efforts to stop the wave of migration on the southern border. They've also erected barbed wire fences. Uh, they put a floating barrier in the Rio Grande. They built border walls out of containers. They've authorized mass arrests for trespassing by migrants on private property. They're planning to spend $5 billion um, 
they've in fact they've already spent five billion dollars already to lessen the impact on the state. But John, there's this enormous. I hadn't even realized this till I was looking at the numbers. The, the the numbers are enormous. The amount of migration, migration detention, is astonishing. And what Texas is doing appears to be uh, a very small drop in a very leaky bucket. Yeah, well, I mean, not only is it a small drop, but it's um, going to overwhelm even that small drop by the. Now, these are democratically um, controlled cities and towns in Texas that are fighting against what Abbott's doing. But one of the arguments they're making is it's going to cost them a hell of a lot of money to uh, engage in these enforcement um, provisions that are in this law and then detain and hold and all of that. It's So it, it's a small drop and it's going to overwhelm. But it, because Texas and other border states are being overwhelmed by migration, it's, you know, they're doing, they're engaging in desperate measures. And uh, they have been, what Abbott has done with, with sending migrants to cities like New York and Chicago, there is obviously a moral component of that because uh, some of those migrants have been tricked. They've been treated as pawns in the worst possible way when you think about just other human beings in the world. On the other hand, if you care about the problem and finding a solution, it has been effective in waking up Democratic mayors to the problem, Democratic mayors in non-border cities, um, and um, and therefore put pressure on the White House. So it's been um, quite an effective piece of policy. I don't know. This one obviously has a, a legal road ahead of it that Emily will now explain to us. Yeah, I mean, there's a 2012 Supreme Court decision about Arizona's law, which was like the show me your papers law. And the Supreme Court said, no, Arizona, you can't do this. It's the federal government that controls immigration law and that that makes a lot of sense because we have one national government and it needs to control our border policy. And so federal law preempts state law. And this arrest policy in Texas, you know, directly affects asylum claims and other matters of federal law. So there's a collision here. Now, of course, we have a new Supreme Court, a very different one from the one that existed in 2012. And so it's possible that the, uh, you know, a ruling will come down differently. And I think Texas is absolutely positioning this piece of legislation to go to the Supreme Court to pose exactly that challenge. It's also worth saying that, you know, Texas has been doing lots of other enforcement measures, like putting up this um, barbed wire fence in major parts of the border that have had really mixed results. And, you know, I was pretty shocked by how dangerous this um, barbed wire fence is. I mean, there have been reports of um, members of the Texas Guard being instructed to push a nursing mother back into the Rio Grande River to deny water to migrants in extreme heat, to block a four-year-old who was trying to cross coils of the razor wire from reaching shore um, on the other side. And, you know, I just these there, it's This is just such an enormous unsolved dilemma for the country. It's true that it's acute in the border states, but we just don't have an answer here. I, uh, why, John, from a political per- perspective, why don't the Democrats just cut some deal with the Republicans that is along the lines of what Republicans want? Because it is not clear to me – let me just finish the thought. It's not at all clear to me that the Democrats have a set of policies that is either more humane or more effective than whatever the Republicans want to do. I mean, it is there's there's nothing that's happening in 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 what's going on that that suggests the Democrats have a handle on on what the policy should be or how to do it effectively. And so why not like it, at least try to 
inoculate themselves from this as a political issue a little bit by just capitulating to the Republicans? I think the I think I think that's what they're going to do. Um, now the question is whether House Republicans will take yes for an answer because it's wrapped up in Ukraine and Israel funding, and House Republicans are going to say let's just do a clean Israel funding bill, and you know we don't need to send money to Ukraine, and this isn't sufficient for the border. Um, both because some of them may believe that, and others may believe why why should we give um, Democrats and Joe Biden uh, a win on this issue, which is part of the mindset if that prevails. It may not. If it's part of the mindset that's kept immigration from being solved in any kind of bipartisan manner, um, uh, I, I, so I think that's what Biden is is basically going uh, to do. And I think also experience has, you know, changed some of his mindset about you know what needs to be done at the border. Um, I would add one thing that my colleague Ed O'Keefe explained to me that I thought was really. Um, Smart is that, you know, you see a warming of the administration towards Venezuela and um, Nicolas Maduro, and which included releasing an ally of Maduro's in exchange for 10 American prisoners. There's some um, sanctions that are being um, discussed as being lifted in exchange for Venezuela holding, you know, what look like or more look like democratic elections. And this is all a part of trying to calm things in Venezuela. So not so many Venezuelans are going to become migrants on the Southern border. Um, and, and when you see the complexity of trying to solve this problem, it's not just more fences, more judges, more patrol officers on the border. It's also each individual country, um, and the politics of that individual country. It's incredibly, um, thorny, but it looks like what they're doing is they're they're getting somewhere on bipartisan immigration legislation, which is basically also the way Congress is supposed to work. When the other house is controlled by the other party, you know, you have to fight your priorities against each other. And here the priority is, you know, legislation about the border versus money for Ukraine. And I know it's not pretty, but it's a whole lot better than a legislature that's run by fantasies of, of like dominance over another party when you have either no control or very small majority. Um, so I think that's probably um, likely to happen, David. Emily, you can understand Texas's frustration with this whole situation. It's expensive. It's a humanitarian tragedy. It's created a massive set of problems in the border region. Uh, and also the Texas's own ability to grapple with it is limited. It's it, it, as John mentioned earlier, like that Texas can take all these steps, but it's still only a tiny tiny fraction. They will still only meet only a tiny, tiny fraction of the migrants who are coming. And Texas, I think, detained 11,000 migrants out of the, and at the same, and during a period when the border patrol in Texas detained 850,000. So here's Texas, which is spending billions of dollars and having a less than, you know, a 1% impact on what's happening there. So what is a state supposed to do in these circumstances? Uh, I mean, I really just feel like this has to be national policy, although obviously there is this burden locally and regionally. And um, and until the buses shipping people to cities like New York and Chicago, we weren't seeing that burden shared nationally. You know, the policy up until now in Texas is that uh, pe- Texas law enforcement were arresting people if they had permission from landovers on private property. And so it was an arrest for trespassing rather than from for entry, which was left to the federal agents. 
And now we're going to be see a big shift in that, supposedly. I think Texas is going to be spending a huge amount of money to do this if they actually implement it. And there was no, um, you know, provision for that in passing this legislation. It's not like Texas has set aside a lot of money. So this whole question of the spending and how it shakes out is not really clear to me. This is just such a hard one. It just doesn't. The numbers are up. There are both push and pull factors happening it's up to Congress to try to address this in some comprehensive way. Amanda Ripley, my journalistic hero, is probably the wisest person in all of Washington, D.C. She has come on the GabFest many, many times over the years, uh, always seen the world in a slightly different and more humane way than the rest of us. And I was reading her Substack Unraveled this week, and I saw an amazing piece, How to Survive 2024 in which Amanda asked a question that probably plagues you, which is how in a time of poison, of division, of enormous conflict, of terrible news, how do you get through it without losing your mind or your sense of self or your soul? And it turns out that she has three really good ideas, or rather she borrowed three really good ideas from a Venezuelan friend of hers. Um, so Amanda, just get us started. Uh, what what are your three basic ideas for getting through a horrible time briefly? And why do, why do we need them? Yes. So we've seen this movie view before, right? So we have to think about how do we want to be in this time? And so I did the only thing I know how to do, which is uh, call someone else. And I did that. And a uh, Venezuelan journalist named Victor Hugo Febres, who has seen this movie before in Venezuela, had three pieces of advice that I've never forgotten. One is to not get hijacked by the polarization because it will make you sick and crazy. The second is to limit the amount of anguish that you take on, which is how you get number one, right? <laughs> That's how you not get hijacked. That's how you prevent hijack. And the third is to see opportunities and seize them and not expect a big result which is hard. I especially like the third one because it's something you can do as opposed to something you can refrain from. And I think having a sense of your own limited impact is so important and remembering that in the end, it's the people around you in your own community that actually like care <laughs> what you have to say or what you do. Um, and I, I just liked the, the, the humility and the comfort in that. I agree. I think about that a lot. I think especially people who work in the news media, we can sometimes have sort of grandiose ideas about what we can or should be able to do. And then everything is like doubly frustrating and enraging because we, we can't control uh, what happens here, right? So just being explicit about that was helpful to me. Although I think that's why it's interesting who the we is in, in, as I was reading it, I was switching the we between us in the business of news where we have to wallow in this in a way. Um, and then the we of the doom scroller who has an, a productive life that doesn't force them to keep their face pressed against the window of their smartphone, but does so anyway, because they become addicted to the to the pain, I found two things really great. One was the being able to do st small stuff, operating in the close at hand. Um, and and uh, David Brooks's latest book is really good on this, is the little stuff you can do in human interaction to make life better for yourself and other people. And that's good for all of us. 
Um, I, but the thing I found really useful is the, the line you wrote, the news is just a bad way to figure out what the bad things are and what to do about them. And I think that's great for, and this is really not a question. Oh my God, I'm just talking. Anyway, what I liked about that a lot was a, that's true for regular people, which is like to get an actual view of the things that are important that are going on in the world, you have to create your own. And I guess that's my question is how do you create a system that allows you to be plugged into the world without giving over to a system that is designed in all kinds of different ways to agitate you, to not elevate the most important things, um, and to generally keep you hopped up. Um, how do you do that um, without, you know, going off into Walden and, and just um, not engaging with the world at all? Yeah, I think you make a really good point, John, which is that the people most likely to get hijacked are actually reporters, right? Because you have to submerse yourself in the news. And that is by itself a toxin because it is not it is not the full picture. In fact, you know what's funny is the other day I was looking at a list of the 10 most common cognitive distortions that lead to depression and anxiety. And I'm reading this and it's literally every single one is in how we cover the news. Every single one. It's like all or nothing thinking, overgeneralization, discounting the positive, blame. <laughs> I mean, it was it was really a recipe incredible. for creating a front page every day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, I understand why that happens, but we should also be aware that in this moment, cognitive distortions are very, very dangerous to us. It's not just that it's a miserable way to live. It's that you will make big mistakes and you will make them in the news media. You will make them in your private life. You will miss opportunities that you where you actually could be useful to the world. And so this is where we can help each other, I think. And and actually, I think the three of you do this all the time. I mean, you 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 switch roles, but the dynamic is sometimes you are helping each other with these distortions, right? Like I think last week this happened and and <laughs> plots, as I remember plots, you were saying something which I totally relate to, which was you were you were feeling very glum about the prospects for all these uh, legal cases that Trump is facing. And you said something like, you know, Trump is going to lose every battle and win the war. Yes, you are incredibly like fatalistic about it. And I also was I feel like I was I internally my heart started beating faster just because it was Sorry. so depressing. Sorry. I was and violating like, yeah. Ripley's Ripley's exactly. Tenet. Yeah, but then but then right now. But then she's got another half of her story. Right. Yes, John Dickerson. Oh, story. John Dickerson oh, to the rest rescue. rescue. Rides in on his Harley. So so this literally this is what happened. Dickerson said okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Actually, Trump did lose re-election. So he, he has not won the war um, to date. And, and so he's kind of helping you and all of us, right, stop ourselves from catastrophizing, which is, which is a very natural impulse in this moment, but not helpful to us, right? Um, so that's where we can, I mean, you think about how we can help each other in these moments, right? And so one thing I am not going to do, I hope, in this next election season is have these long, endless, catastrophizing lamentation sessions with my friends where you come into the conversation feeling not great and you leave feeling worse, right? You're just, you're just trading 
terrible feelings and it doesn't actually go anywhere. <laughs> and can I just bolt onto this? And I'm, I'm hoping you have a word for it, which is then the person you're talking to who, if you don't meet or exceed their <laughs> level of hyperventilation um, and sharpening of the nearest object so that you can rush out the door and impale the, the nearest attacker, that you are then morally bankrupt or awful or smug or privileged or whatever, that, the, that the, these kinds of conversations you're describing have um, an escalatory thing about them, which makes this all even worse. Right. Your job is to validate and then one up the person. And if you don't do that, then you feel somehow like you've failed. So, so Amanda, like you, I like you barely consume the news. You famously wrote about how you don't really consume the news. And I, I'm with you, except for the GabFest, I try to avoid consuming the news. Which is quite so, a big exception. Let's just say. Um, yeah. Um, but the, the I want to get to this the 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 one question I, I want you to articulate for me why this isn't just hiding from the world and abdicating from your responsibility. So there are people. I think there's a sense of self importance that a lot of people have. Like I'm going to be the one who's going to show everyone what a crook Trump is, what a crook Biden is. You know how how all the child sex trafficking is going on in the pizza joint. I'm going to be that one. And if you are. If you are Jack Smith or you're Fanny Willis, you actually might be able to do that. You actually might be able to bring a case which changes what happens in the country. And I think we would all think it would be really sad if Fanny Willis was just like, I'm just going to prosecute. I'm just going to focus on the little way I can do good and prosecute a couple of local drug dealers here in Atlanta rather than saying, let me go after the big the big game. Um, what do you – how is it just the rest of us should just accept that we are we don't matter we are small moats right. floating in the dust of the universe yeah i kind of hate that i hate that feeling and i had mixed feelings about writing about this because of that i don't think that's quite it right i mean we do matter we especially matter as a collective and the last thing i would suggest is that we should you know bury our heads in the sand and and pretend this isn't happening um and and I do actually still consume the news, but I do it extremely carefully, you know, the way you might take um, painkillers, literally. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be very conscious of when I'm doing it, when I'm not doing it. I do it every day, right? But I do it uh, at certain times of the day with certain outlets. And the thing I've tried to work on lately is to really read the news that's actually counter to what I thought was going to happen, that breaks that all or nothing thinking. Uh, including news that is maybe vaguely slightly encouraging about the future, and then try to actually share that news. So I, I share intentionally make myself read those stories, because sometimes my eyes will just glaze over the headline if it's positive. And then and I'll move to the horrible story. And, and I'm trying to correct for that distortion, right? So I'm trying to always get a bigger picture of what's happening rather than a smaller one. Does that make sense? Can, yeah, but what about the Fanny Willis? Like, should Fanny Willis not bother? Well, obviously not. Right. Yeah, I know, but but okay. But does it, is it only that three people get to be Fanny? No, Fanny no, Willis no, no. And the rest. Of- I actually think for, for all of us have to get a bigger picture of what's happening and stay sane and continue to be in relationship with people we can influence and be influenced by. Right. So you would think if we actually really wanted. <laughs> the country to move in a different direction and we're not hijacked by polarization, 
probably we would spend 90% of our energy as journalists covering how to build trust, how to persuade, how to listen, right? Writing about how Trump is going to be a dictator, while I understand it, and I do think it's important to be clear-eyed, because this is someone who's very, very predictable. We, we, I mean, this is one good thing about him, right? We know what he's going to do. He says what he's going to do. He's not hard to understand. I get that. But underneath that is a theory of change that, that powerful people have, including you know lawyers and prosecutors and journalists. And the theory of change is, if I can shine a light on this, it will change. People will not vote for this person. And that is a mistake. That's where this logic breaks down. The people who are writing about how Trump is going to be a dictator are not trusted by the people who vote for Trump. To the contrary, right? So you can actually have a counterproductive effect. Not that you shouldn't do it, but again, like Victor told us, right? Don't expect a big outcome and it can't be all that you do, right? Is this conversation really about Donald Trump specifically? Is this particular toxin and challenge? I'm I'm having trouble deciding how much we're focusing on that versus like politics or the world writ large. I mean, I find myself really resisting the notion that we're not supposed to inform ourselves about lots of issues, especially worldwide issues. And you know, my I don't have any like really rules about how I consume news, but I deeply feel that if you're reading something where you're learning something new about a part of the country or a part of the world that you don't know very much about, that that's really important. And that sometimes anguish is part of that experience. And that's fine because that's good because you're feeling empathy with people who are different from you. I mean, to use uh, Israel, Palestine, Gaza as an an example right now, I've been feeling like it's really important to take in all the pain um, from but why? Why? Because I feel like I I don't feel like I need to saturate myself in that and only read that and wallow in it. But I feel like it's this incredibly um, hot part of the world right now that matters internationally could affect our election. And I want to have some sense of what people there are feeling. I don't need it to take over my psyche or my life and depress me, but I do feel like it's important not to just understand one side of that. And sometimes in these polarized conflicts, we only make room for the feelings and emotions of the side that we are drawn to. And that feels to me like part of the problem of polarization. But Emily, if you, I mean, I guess I would dispute the idea that you're taking on the pain. If you're saying it's not really, it's not, it won't affect my psyche or my sense of well-being or health, but I, then you're not taking on the anguish. Well, wait a minute. That's then such you're an extreme. No, I mean, you can feel things deeply in the moment without like sliding into utter depression and despair over something. I'm not saying that I don't feel anything. I totally, I have such a surfeit of empathy I carry around all the time, but I, I don't feel like it is <laughs> messing up my life in some way to try yes, to Ms. understand Ripley. and feel that, con- like, I think that's fine. I mean, yeah. I believe I like I believe in moderation and titrating it. I just don't think turning it off is. I agree. That, that, I, I think look, you. going to extremes is what we're trying to work against yes. here, right? All or nothing thinking was literally the first cognitive distortion that we talked about. So, so yeah, I'm not saying go to zero, right? And you, it, different people have different levels of permeability, right? I am very permeable to this stuff. I wish I weren't. My God, I used to be less so. I mean, I used to cover horrible things day in and day out, but now I know about myself that uh, I have to limit this or else I will be no good to anyone. And 
this has been very helpful to me. So I'm going to share it with you all and see what you think in, in trying to figure this out, Emily, because I know what you mean. I want to be informed. I don't want to close my mind to, to suffering that's happening. And, and I that's think it's not thing. just about Trump, yes. right? It's definitely not. I'm glad you got us off of that particular <laughs> hobby horse. So it is also about climate change, right? It is also about Ukraine and Israel and Gaza. Okay. So this has been really helpful to me. Um, there's a social psychologist named Adam Mastroianni who has a wonderful newsletter called Experimental History. So he wrote this great newsletter about how he had to stop consuming so much news. And he said um, that he, he realized he'd been under this delusion where he said, it kind of felt like my big contribution to the cause was reading and feeling bad. It was like I was floating above all the victims of every bad thing going, don't worry, everybody. I'm here to read all about you and feel awful. And I realized, oh my gosh, I feel that way too. There's a trick of the mind in which worrying and feeling bad feels to your brain like doing something. That's literally what anxiety disorder is, is feeling like by worrying, it's, worrying feels better than fear or sadness, right? It feels like you're taking action. Now, I'm not saying that's what you're doing, Emily. I mean, I think actually because of the work you do, you can influence these things. And it's important for you to know what's going on with, you know, with some boundaries. But that that trick of the mind is important to notice. And that's why your third point is so useful, because part of what that trick of the mind does is, I mean, action is also hard, because it's like, where do I begin? I mean, there's all like, what am I going to do? Like find Navalny, um, you know, uh, <laughs> yes, and, actually. uh, but, but I, there is a, there are, are, are a wonderful set of, um, rules that people who obsess about building rules for flourishing in their lives come up with, which is that they use the triggering moment, which is the feeling of doom scrolling, the feeling of I'm going to suffer in the way that you just described, Amanda. And the minute they feel that they go, I'm going to take this concrete action on a value that I care about that's close at home. So I'm going to go downstairs and just like whatever that means, I'm going to go do something for the kids or I'm going to go do something for so that you just build the impulse into an immediate action, even if that action ends up being nothing so great, that gets you from basically two to three in the list that you uh, have in your piece. I mean, I'm sure that I've said this to you guys before, but the number one reason I left being editor of Slate I think ultimately was that I just didn't, I, I couldn't stand the, the, the kind of uh, brine that we were in all the time and that I went to Atlas Obscura and then subsequently have gone to CityCast because basically these were areas where I felt like actually in my work, I can make, I can see a sort of small productive way in which I'm changing the community I'm in or changing the world I'm in to make it slightly more wonderful or slightly more connected than it's been. And it was an it's it was like a very it was a huge sense of relief the minute i started working at atlas obscura for that reason because it was like i no longer feel this sense of rageful impotence which is what i felt most of the time when i was paying a lot of attention to politics as a as an editor and instead felt like oh now there's a there's a little bit of magic a, a, a eyedropper of magic i've put into the world and made it slightly better hmm. That's nice. An eyedropper of magic. The question is, Amanda, how to curate your day. I mean, I know you've already talked about this a little bit, but to make it a little, I mean, literally, do you not have like news apps on your phone? Are you like, I only read news from 9.15 to 9.32? <laughs> um, yes. Give us one or two more life Those hacks. both sound really good to me. Yes. Especially yes. 9.15 to 9.32. But I would just say PM would be the, so for me, 
I find I'm most optimistic and productive and open and creative in the morning. So I don't want to no mess that, that up. <laughs> by like, sure. I don't uh, want to do anything. By 4 p.m., I've given up all hope. And now it's time to read the Washington Post. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like at that point, now that's, I have the luxury to do that. Not, I mean, you, you That's a you know, roller coaster that's every Jeff, day. That's Jeff Bezos' business model. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, why, that's why I feel every morning, defend the morning. Yes. Like, hold off the world yeah. until like 10 a.m., except for when we tape. Right. Um, and if you can defend the morning, you, you've won the day. Right, right. And just in just kind of very being very conscious about it. Now, it's very hard because you get ambushed all the time now in a way that you didn't from mo- like all of my life and all of human history, you could more or less contain the news, right? In, until about 10 minutes ago. And now it comes at you in all directions. I mean, you can't open your email without getting some kind of newsletter. And now I don't get any notification. I mean, all the obvious hygiene stuff, I don't, you know, that's obvious, right? But I also try to change, you know, where I get my news. And I try to, again, like, not just skip over the stories that are hopeful, um, nor the ones that are negative that I need to know about, but asking myself, is this going to help me learn something? Like Emily said, is this going to help me learn something I didn't know, or be useful in some way? Um, Otherwise, I'm not going to take it in just just to to feel like I'm helping when I'm when I'm definitely not. Amanda Ripley has a Substack Unraveled, which you should subscribe to. Amanda, thanks for coming. Always, you bring such light to the GabFest. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great to see you guys. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you have something to talk about, and the two of you have exactly the same thing to talk about because you both had the same chatter lined up. Then you cede the floor to John because he had a better grip on it. I'm going to let John Dickerson have this chatter. Researchers in, at UC Berkeley um, have made a groundbreaking discovery, and that is that chimpanzees and bonobos, our closest living relatives, possess really good, long-lasting memories. Um, I believe the case is that, that this discovery found the best memories in non-humans. And basically, these primates can recognize other primates that were a member of the group and that they haven't seen in over two decades, which suggests a memory span that's 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 that long. And the way they did this, which is what I love, is um, they basically showed these chimpanzees and bonobos pictures of groupmates that had either died or had been moved to another facility or zoo. And by using infrared um, eye tracking technology, the researchers observed that the participants, in this case, the chimpanzees and the bonobos, their eyes lingered longer um, on images of, of individuals or other um, primates that they had previously been with in indicating uh, um, a degree of recognition. And also there's, there's some evidence that the, the, the recognition was correlated with individuals that they'd had positive relationships with, um, which is an interesting um, finding about social memory. Do you remember the people who were awful to you or the people who were um, wonderful to you in life. I've recently been really trying to shake the memory of this one awful teacher I had because whatever he was, you know, like having a tough day or having a tough life and, and like, whatever, let it go. And oddly, I can't, do I retain such powerful memories of people who were awesome to me? Or do you retain those, those memories differently? I feel like both of those, the people you don't retain are the ones who are you have neither deeply positive nor deeply negative feelings about. I mean, I'm just I'm just trying to conjure back 
my own feelings. And do I remember Lars Gutenberg, who I got into a fight with, the only person I've ever had a physical fight with? Yes. Do I remember a lot of the other people in my sixth grade class? I do not. If only you were a chimpanzee. Do I remember the girls I had crushes on? I do. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember their current Facebook pages? You do. (laughs) 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 Kidding. Emily, what is your chatter? I saw a weird and creepy movie. Have you guys seen May, December? This um, Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore vehicle. Uh, The director is Todd Haynes, who made the movie Carol, which is a movie I love. I can't decide what to make of this movie, so I want everyone else to go see it. I've had great conversations about it with a bunch of people because it's just weird. The soundtrack for it makes it seem kind of campy, although apparently Todd Haynes really objected to that adjective used for this movie. It's about a creepy topic for sure, which I won't say more about because I think if you don't know anything going into the movie, it's probably even more interesting. Anyway, um, mixed feelings, but it was it made me think. So yeah, May, December. I was going to chatter about one thing and then I decided to chatter about another because I was talking to Shane and Julie before the show about this and I realized maybe it's more interesting. So I was at, I had to go to the dermatologist just for an annual check-in the other day. And I mentioned, oh, I have this itch in the center of my back, um, sort of right in the place you cannot reach, just exactly in the spot you can't reach. And I, I was just like, I, I think there must be something there. There must be some kind of growth. I, I just, you know, it's a, it's really bothering me all the time. And the doctor kind of took a look at it and, and, and sort of drew a circle around. He, he drew a circle around this area on my back and was like, is this where it itches? And I was like, yes, that's where it itches. And he's like, there's absolutely nothing there. Um, what it is, is that apparently it's extremely common as you get older that you get pinched nerves in your back. And when you get these, there are these very tiny kind of non, they're nerves that don't even really do anything, but these tiny little nerves in your back that don't really do anything. But when they get pinched, they manifest themselves in a feeling that your skin is itchy or that your skin is vibrating or that your skin is warm. And I fortunately just have the itchiness. Um, but it's this, it's this really interesting case where you feel an absolutely physical manifestation. That fe- I, if you told me, I'd be like, there is a red welt in the middle of my back. There's definitely a red welt in the middle of my back. Um, and he's like, there, but then you look at the middle of my back, there's nothing there. And it's just the nerve underneath that is kind of acting wrongly, acting badly. So if you are having this phantom nerve pain or phantom nerve irritation or phantom nerve itch, it's not you, it's your body. Uh, listeners, you probably have phantom nerve pain of all sorts, um, but that's not stopping you from sending us amazing chatters that are filled with joy and life and vitality and fascination. And you email them to us at gabfest.slate.com. And this week's listener chatter comes from Michael from Queens. Hey, Gabfest. Hope you're well. Uh, my name is Michael from Queens in New York City. And my cocktail chatter this week is a story I saw as part of New York Magazine's 37 Reasons to Love New York. It's a story about Brooklyn Borough President Antonio Reynoso spending all $45 million of his budget to improve prenatal and pregnancy care in three Brooklyn hospitals. His goal is to make Brooklyn the safest borough in which to have a baby. I flagged this story because there are fewer times than I'd like when you can see the power the politics has to make change for the good in a community but this is one of those times. 
Thanks so much. Have a great week. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week at our and last show of the year, our Conundrum Show. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We have our Conundrum Show next week, but it's our it's our last um, regular Slate Plus of the year. And what a treat! Amanda Ripley has stuck around to Slate Plus with us. Thank you, Ripley. Um, and we're it's so we're going to the holiday weekend. We're going to the holiday week, I should say, um, and. M- many of us, including me, have a very light week in the week ahead. And so we're going to talk about what we are looking forward to doing, consuming, uh, occupying our time, distracting us during the holiday week. Um, I'm going to start with a few things. I'm going to say a few things. Here we go. Number one, I just realized I'm so looking forward to I have this pile up of clothes because my girlfriend buys me a lot of clothes that and and I need to purge. I'm really looking forward to purging my closet of all the stuff I don't wear. That's number one. Wait, out with the old, in with the new. I just want to make sure yes, that you're not sure. throwing away what she's immediately given you, which would be a really weird thing to admit. That would be really weird. Um, can't say that I've never done that, <laughs> but I but I don't have any plans awesome. on this particular occasion. She's, okay. she's got great got great taste. Um, it's mostly athletic gear, anyway. Then I have this amazing new cookbook. Um, which is called To Asia with Love by Hedy McKinnon, who's a New York Times cooking uh, contributor. And this cookbook is so good, I cannot even believe how great it is. And I've just been cooking through it, and I plan to cook through a bunch more over the holidays. Um, and then What's the name again for listeners who might have missed to it? To Asia with Love. To Asia with Love. And the thing I like most about it is that it is not advertised as a vegetarian cookbook. And then you, as you've been cooking through it for a while, you're like, wait, this is a vegetarian cookbook. They didn't even tell me. And it makes it even better. I love that. Uh, it, it totally it totally tricks you. Um, and then I'm going to uh, read. Uh, I intend to read a bunch of books that I put on hold of the library. Because as I mentioned on previous GabFest Slate Plus, I'm now a library snob aficionado and i have seven books that were on hold at the library and they've all come in and i've just missed it oh my gosh wow great timing that's what i'm doing yeah all right can i ask sorry i hate hate to keep doing this when you read on a a vacation is it one long sit or do you just have like six or seven sessions in a day uh like three sessions in a day maybe not six or seven definitely not six or seven but but I usually have a kind of a mid-afternoon, some sometimes a morning, then the mid-afternoon for sure. If I'm gonna do a big block of reading, it's a mid-afternoon, and then I'll then a bedtime, which I will forget everything I read because I will fall asleep while I'm reading. Um all right, Baz, what about you? I am really looking forward to just spending time with friends and family, right? Like that's oh, fuck the most you. important. Virtue signaling. <laughs> God damn it, I for- knew I forgot Sorry. something. Um, so- <laughs> Uh, I get to go to New York with my kids and my husband to go see a show and have dinner with my parents, which is like something we do every year. And um, what are you going to see there, Emily? Curly Victorious, which looks great. Excited for that. And then I'm going to Vermont also with my kids and husband to see very close friends. And that's like a very cozy holiday of 
board games and long walks in whatever kind of hiking Vermont weather exists, less and less snow usually. Uh, and lots of cooking, lots of good cooking. Like That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 